Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer and try Peloton risk-free with Peloton Rentals at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. This is Dana Balut. And I'm Hibbe Fisher. And you're listening to An Empire. It went viral. It was everywhere. I used to tell my father, you will see one day, I will make a film and I will go to Cannes. <laughs> I don't know why I say that. I felt insulted. I was like, where is my audience? I didn't go to therapy. I think I should. This is an empire. Stories of exceptional Arabs around the world and their journey to the top. Heba, hi. <laughs> hi, Jane. <laughs> so who do we have today? Um, who do we have today? We're talking to another rock star female founder. And this one, she's shaking up the fashion industry. Can you tell me, like, in your PR language, what the modest is? Like, one line. Um, in my PR language? <laughs> I have different languages. I, um, the modest is uh, the first and only uh, luxury destination for modest fashion globally, built on values of diversity, inclusivity, and empowering women. My name is Rizlan Genes. I'm Algerian. I uh, am 40 years old, and uh, I am founder and CEO of The Modest. Modest actually is a lover of fashion. So it's actually a play on word between modesty and modest, which speaks to the love of fashion. So... Uh, but you can pronounce it, whatever. Call us whatever you want to call us. <laughs> <laughs> no, I learned a new word today. That's yeah, awesome. That's what it means, yeah. Our guest this week is Rizlan Guinness. She started the world's first modest fashion retailer, The Modest, in 2017. And when we say modest fashion, we mean clothes that may be long-sleeved, go down past your bum, but are also seriously fashionable. Luxury modest fashion is a massive industry in the tens of billions of dollars, and the modest is a pioneer in this space. And they're killing it. Rizlan wouldn't disclose how much the modest has raised so far, but they're on their second round of funding. They ship to 120 countries, and they have very happy customers. Rizlan is also a lovely person. I, I really enjoyed speaking with her. It was like chatting with an old friend, even though this interview was actually the first time we had ever met. (laughs) 
Rizlan joined me in our studios in Dubai. I feel like I should add the disclaimer that this was pre-corona. Um, and I wouldn't care to comment on what someone was wearing, except she's the founder of a fashion empire, so it seems appropriate. She rocked up in black leather pants and a leopard print blouse and looked gorgeous. Are we starting the podcast? <laughs> Today on an empire, how to build a fashion empire. Earlier, you were telling me about your morning routine. Can you tell me a bit about that now that we're recording? What do you What do you do first thing in the morning? What kind of rituals? Yeah, do you so have? I mean, I I started about a year and a half ago waking up really early. So I used to be a night owl, and and now I'm definitely an early bird. I wake up around five five thirty in the morning. I have two. I call them my sacred hours. My two hours a day that are not interrupted. I when I wake up, I don't look at my phone. The first thing I do is, you know, get right into my routine. So, I meditate, I journal, I like listening to podcasts or a book. Yeah, I I I think I would love to try that because I have a horrible habit where uh, my phone is my alarm, and so that's the first mm. thing I grab. And then, of course, it's a bright light in your face, and then I spend probably twenty minutes checking all the notifications and getting stressed out. And no, that's the first it's, thing It's the do. worst thing. Yeah. Like, forget meditation, forget anything. If there's one tiny little step you want to do in the morning, first of all, your alarm should not be scary, screaming alarm. <laughs> that's, that's the first thing. You don't want to wake up your mind with that, like, kind of, crazy sound. And then the second thing is just don't look at your phone. Don't look at your emails, in me, social media. Nothing is going to change. The world is not going to stop any emergency. You're, you're going to receive a call. But it makes so much of a difference. It, it just helps you start the day with the right state of mind. What was your childhood like? Can you tell me about the household you grew up in? Are sure. you an only child? Tell me about your parents. Sure. Yeah, it's. I would say it was an interesting childhood. My my father was, you know, in the War of Independence of Algeria, so he spent seven years at in in the battlefield. And wow. when he, uh, you know, when Algeria got its independence, he, um, you know, got into politics and had a burgeoning political um, career. My mother who was much younger than him, uh, you know, was was at the time still study, studying. They separated when I was pretty young. I was about a year and a half or two years um, old. And so I was uh, brought up by my maternal uh, grandmother um, because my mother traveled to study and my father was, you know, in, in the political field. And I remember a, um, you know, a childhood where I was, um, uh, there was so much love and, and I was very protected as a child. And I was the only child. And you can imagine what with, with a grandmother, how it's like. Um, and, and it was a, um, you know, lovely, very comfortable upbringing until the age of 10. And then the age of 10, I moved to the UAE to live with my mother and my stepfather. And my stepdad had been in my life since the age of five. And he was an entrepreneur. And life then was a bit different. So it went into, you know, seeing the the hustle and seeing, you know, the entrepreneurial life. So it was it was nice to be exposed to, you know, that comfortable, abundant kind of, you know, upbringing, but also see what it's like to, you know, run a business and 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 hustle and have a, you know, middle class upbringing and and all of that. So, but I remember a lot of fun and a lot of laughter and a lot of happiness as a child. So you spent a little bit of time in Algeria, a little bit of time in the UAE, and a little bit of time in Lebanon? Correct. Is that right? So yeah. how do you, when somebody asks where you're from, yeah. how do you answer that and what splits your identity? Um, 
Look, I'm I'm Algerian through and through in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm my blood is Algerian. Um, my mother exposed me also to the Moroccan culture, so I'm very aware of that. But I spent seven years of my teenage years and into adulthood in Lebanon, and I think it was one of the best times of my life, and I'm very influenced by, by Lebanon. I also grew up in a Lebanese household, so my accent is Lebanese. I think we've got more than five, six different nationalities. In, in our family. So I, I do have that Algerian belonging and I find that the older I get, the more nostalgic I become, especially that I don't visit often. But, but I also love Lebanon and it feels like home and I go back very often. And um, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a performer first, <laughs> like Sherihan. I was so obsessed with her that I kind of just wanted to be her. And then I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I wanted to be, you know, there were times when I wanted to be three things. You know, when we're children and they tell you what you want to be and you kind of list four or five different things. <laughs> I think Gen Z is back to that. Now. <laughs> and actually, up until, you know, growing up and graduating from school, I wasn't very clear on what I wanted to do. So I, I was not one of those kids who knew exactly what career line I was going to take, what I wanted to do with my life. I mean, that's when I see people like that. I'm like, amazing. Um, I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't the case for me. What about the first time uh, that you remember being excited about fashion? How how did, did you did you always look this fabulous? Like how how did Thank you? <laughs> um, I always loved fashion, and 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 my mother is my first memory of of. It was more than fashion. It was just glam. It was just, you know, being glamorous and, and attractive and beautiful and the hair and the makeup and, and all of that. And I, I have this very vivid memory of my mother whenever she would come back from her travels. You know, back in the day in the 80s when women traveled, they used to dress up. Mm -hmm. So the hair and the makeup and now we travel in sneakers and you just want to be comfortable. And and she used to walk in and, and that image, you know, is constantly in my mind of like the very glamorous, very fashionable, um, you know, woman. Um, and then you went to the London School of Economics yeah. for university, right? Mm -hmm. Where you studied business. Correct. Um, was that your first time away from home? Um, not, I mean, yes and no, because I'd started um, working before. I didn't go to university immediately after school. I took a little bit of a break. And during that break, I was away from home. But my family was living in Abu Dhabi. I was living in Dubai. So it wasn't, we weren't too far. And then, yeah, I mean, I started my studies at the LSE. And that's when I was, yeah, properly, more or less, out of, out of home. What, what did you do during that gap uh, period between school and university? I was university? working. No, I was working. Yeah, I went right into work. I wasn't sure I was going, you know, I, what I wanted to do. And uh, I got a, a, an opportunity and I kind of, you know, started working and then got into university. Yeah, I did it in, in an, a bit of a atypical way. What was that first job? It was a brush. Ghazdan's first job was at Abraj Capital, a huge private equity firm in Dubai that managed hundreds of millions of dollars. She started first in an admin role and moved up into branding and partnerships. 
I was working with them for about 13 or 14 years. And when I started, um, I started, I mean, I was like one of the first five people to be employed. And when I left, the company was, was huge and had about three, 400 people um, under its um, umbrella. So, and yeah, when I started, I mean, they had just opened doors. So I was doing a little bit of everything. And as I said, it was an opportunity. They were looking for, you know, to employ um, individuals. I think I was, you know, always a person who rolled up my sleeves. I was 19 then. I think I was about 19 or 20. And yeah, I mean, I, I started there. And my job when I started was very different from my job two years into it. You know, if you, if you survive that business, you can pretty much do anything. It was quite tough, but in a good way. It was filled with ambitious, smart, um, you know, driven people. Uh, and you kind of felt like it was a, a tribe. And so that discipline and that, you know, drive and that, you know, excitement to achieve and, and to contribute uh, was definitely taken with me. And, and yeah, yeah, that's stayed with them and grew in that business for, for 13. I left 13 years. I left in 2015 to start the modest. What was the moment when you decided to, to leave a stable corporate job uh, to start your own company, The Modest? To be, to be fair also, the idea of The Modest had started brewing in my mind um, for about a year and a half or so prior to leaving my, my job at the time. Um, and, um, and I mean, it was nowhere near what it is today. And it wasn't, of course, crystallized and, and well-formed. But it was an idea that you had potential. I mean, I'd seen the frustration of women like my mother who dressed modestly. Myself, I worked in finance for that long. So, of course, my 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 dress code uh, was was also conservative and more corporate and um, and I just knew that you know that it's bound to 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 be the case for many women out there who dress this way and who want options and who want a destination that is relevant um, to them and uh, I also know that like if if something frustrates you very very often providing a solution is likely to be a solution for many people not just yourself yeah. Can you can you describe to me how like was there a conversation that you had with somebody about okay I'm going to leave what I've been doing for 13 years and essentially jump off a cliff. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, like how did how did that conversation go? I mean, I spoke to, uh, you know, at the time, a colleague who, who I worked with, and I spoke to a very close friend, a couple of people. I mean, I'd say probably like around five people. Family, you know, my mother, from the perspective of, well, I'm shifting from, you know, a paid employee to running my own business. And, um, and um I, I kept it quite vague um, for some people because the – because it, you know, it's not just another idea. There was nothing like it at the time, and and in fact, from from the time that we started working on it as a team, um, it took us a year to launch the business. We kept it quite. Um, what is the word? I can't remember now. But it incognito. Will come to me. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> no, there's another still. Stealth mode. Stealth mode. Yeah. That's the word. <laughs> it was on stealth mode until we launched because, again, we didn't want anyone to activate on modesty before we were we were out there. Um, but everyone who'd heard um, the idea at the outset was excited by it because it was different. But it was very simple. 
and the problem was very clear. And I think that that's probably the notion of every startup. Like, there's a problem, and you're providing a solution. There's a need, and you're providing a service. When you spoke with your mom in those early days, what did what did she say? Was she like, "Why? What are you doing?" Or mm. she or she understood because her husband had, you know, was an entrepreneur as well. I think I my mother is um, is uh, a very, has always been a very encouraging person. So there's always that um, that notion of, of course you can do it. Yeah, definitely. Of course, why wouldn't you be able to do it? And that I think that. You know, in hindsight, I think support system around you like that, you know, that encouragement is just um, invaluable in life in general, but especially when you're starting a business, because you just don't know anything. You think you know, but you don't know anything. You're in for, for the ride of your life. And unless you have that encouragement, whether it comes from within you or without, to take that first step, it's extremely hard to, to do it because there's there are a million reasons for you not to do it. Right? Yeah, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. You can relate. You yes. can relate. <laughs> when we left off, Rizlan had been working on the Modest for a year in stealth mode before they were ready to launch. First of all, I had no connections to the world of fashion or e-com. I mean, I had been in investments all of my life and finance world, so I, I didn't have a network there. I had a friend who was in the fashion space and I reached out to her and she connected me with a couple of people. But the most important thing was that they all came together around the excitement, around the vision and what it what it was that we were doing. It wasn't a case of, oh, good, let's do an e-commerce platform and let's then think about our values. It started with this woman deserves more. She's incredible. She's amazing. She's fashionable. She's misunderstood. She's stereotyped. And we understand her. We get her. And we're going to serve her the best way we can. And we're also going to represent her in a way that has not been done before. So when the idea started to brew for you, like, what was it? And, what, and yeah, what was the pain point? Yeah, I mean, the, the, it, was, it was the frustrating, in its simplest way, it was the frustrating shopping experience that modest dressers, both regionally and globally, experienced whenever, you know, whenever they shopped. I mean, we're talking about women who uh, wear the hijab, but we're also talking about women who just, you know, prefer a longer sleeve and a longer hem and covering their neckline and, and, and not showing too much. And, and the fact that whenever they shopped, it was very time consuming and, and frustrating and alienating. And, you know, they had to spend so much time to sift through so much product in order to put an outfit. And, and that's one part of it. But also the other part of it is that then you're, you're really not represented in the fashion world. You're not spoken to. You don't have any inspiration. You don't see women in magazines that look like you, that dress like you. There's no content that's relevant to you. So it goes beyond just your shopping experience. So how did you convince your first brand to join the, the Modus? So we went really well prepared. Um, and, and we knew that modesty was not, do you know, even the term modesty was not used you know, people were calling it demure. People were calling it different. There was still an argument. And I, mem I remember being in a conference before we launched the business and someone had said, I am not sure modest is the right term for it. It just doesn't sound great. And I'm thinking in my head, well, acne was not like is not necessarily a great brand name. However, you don't necessarily now 
relate Acne the brand, which is like one of the coolest brands, to a zit. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like it's the, a brand is what you make out of it, and 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 modesty is what what described it the best. So we knew we were going down that route. And we wanted to kind of really marry fashion and modesty. And we wanted to pull no punches when it comes to, to fashion whilst addressing, addressing modesty. So it was, it was very educational for the brands. It clearly showed them the potential. They got extremely excited because they knew we were a bridge that would connect them to a customer base that they can't speak meaningfully to. Um, and, and through us, they would be able to do that. But you know what? Regardless, the experience and the reaction was the same. Almost everyone did not understand what modesty was and had a stereotypical notion to what modesty is. So so they would, they would say abaya, burqa, hijab. These were the first things that came to mind, black, and and this is why you know we say that we we break stereotypes is because we truly kind of you know turn it all on its head and went down the route of no actually it's super fashionable and she's not conservative that's what you think in fashion she actually is and she's quite open and daring and you you guys launched on international women's day 2017 yes. right mm-hmm. you launched the the modest on that day so uh what did you launch with what what was the first iteration of the modus yeah so we we started with a, te- a teaser campaign um, ahead of launching and we launched the business as you said on international women's day and um, we launched with 75 brands at the time which That's was a lot you know it was a lot of brands but it was you know great to have all of these brands on on the site and uh, it, you know it was it was an amazing day um, and whilst at the outset we thought you know maybe maybe there'll be some controversy maybe some people will talk about it being i don't know like you know modesty is not freeing of women and is not feminist and but everybody got it and that resonance and that reaction was very encouraging what what happened on that first day so you went live like yes. somebody pressed the button so to yeah. speak and then did you all hover around the website and watch traffic come yeah. in like how did that's that exactly do? what we did <laughs> we literally didn't work i mean literally you'd get one order and there'll be like a massive dance in the office and a, and a party but i think one of the things that i learned with the modest is to celebrate small small moments i as a person, I'm not like that. I'm constantly looking at what's next, what next. But being with a team makes you stop and celebrate for them. And you kind of then start enjoying, you know, celebrating those little moments. And that's why doing it, and, and you, I'm sure you can relate to this, doing it, you have to do it for the right reasons and for the right purpose and, and values because when it gets very overwhelming, and it will get overwhelming very quickly, um, you, when you ask the question of why am I doing all this, it kind of makes sense to you. Otherwise, otherwise, you know, it's easy to give in. Uh, how many people were working with you when you launched The Modest? And how did you finance? So at launch, I think we were about 23, around 23, 24 people. And um, the financing, I mean, we, we seed money came in from myself, friends and family. Um, but I very soon, you know, started fundraising. Tell me about those conversations. What did people, what did they say when they said no? And what did they say when they said yes? And yeah. how did you handle both? <laughs> 
you know, in a business as a as a startup, you're always working with what we call your runway, right? So you're working with a period of time where you know that you're alive as a business, <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, the, the more no's you hear, and there are always to every one yes, there are many, many, many no's. Um, you know, to, for for every no that you're receiving, you're constantly thinking about the livelihood of your business, and it's just part of the you know that that entrepreneurial life there's you can't do it any other way unless you're not fundraising at all um and so with us i think the one common thing is that there isn't an investor that we pitch to um who was not excited by the idea um but we i've heard so many no's that i'm like so good with rejection right now what did you do to celebrate when you closed your seed round God, I didn't sell. I was freaked out. <laughs> I've got people's <laughs> money. <laughs> I need to deal with that. <laughs> um, but I told you, like celebrating for me is not is not very common. I have to push myself. So I got back to work quite quickly after fundraising. <laughs> <laughs> what um, What has been one of your uh, most successful marketing campaigns, and and why do you think it resonated so much? I think I mean I still feel that our launch campaign was was brilliant because it just spoke the values. Do not tell me what I am to wear, what I am to cover, my skin or my hair. Do not tell me how much is too much. I am my keeper. I follow my heart. It was a, a, a campaign that spoke about, you know, modesty and it showed women. It was filmed in London and it showed, you know, diverse women. So older, younger, hijabi. And, and it featured them doing things that were a bit out of the box. And again, remember, this was like three three years ago, more than three years ago. So before before we started seeing hijabis, um, ice skater and a hijabi, you know, uh, in the fencing and all of that stuff. And, and we had a hijabi kind of do a dance and one on a skateboard. And it just, even vi- both visually and in terms of the, um, the the script, it kind of started breaking those stereotypes, and it was uplifting. And I think because it was different, it was it had an impact. I am the modest. I belong to me. So I've read, and tell me if the statistic is incorrect, <laughs> yeah. but I've read that the modest fashion industry is expected to hit $330 billion U.S. billion this year in 2020. Is that an accurate estimate? It's, it is. I think it's slightly um, exaggerated, but it's, 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 I think that figure relates to Muslim spend. Oh, across okay. probably men, women in fashion and in everything else, so it's slightly bigger. But the, but the industry is in the tens of billions of dollars conservatively, so it's it's quite quite a large opportunity. So obviously, you guys started here in Dubai, and and biggest markets are in the GCC. But uh, the U.S. is is fast growing as a as mm. a customer destination. Um, I've read in one of the articles that your team was actually surprised by how quickly you penetrated the U.S. market. Can you talk a little bit more about that, especially in light of modest fashion and just 
yeah, yeah, what we see as consumer trends globally and yeah. then what your experience has been with the U.S. picking up so fast? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a, a very interesting and nice surprise to actually see that growth in the U.S. because as you can imagine, I mean, it's it's been it's been growing quite a bit for us. And um, the interesting thing is that our customers in the U.S. are predominantly and I'm I mean, around 95 percent of our customers are Western women, are American women. They're not, you know, we're not tapping into the Middle Eastern diaspora or Muslims in in the U.S. So um, that's what's interesting. But then, you know, American women in in the in the states where where we um, exist, you know, predominantly women dress in a in a modest way. Whether she's you know a mom or uh, uh, an executive or whatever that may be. So, and and this goes back to the fact that modesty is is quite broad and quite universal as a way of dressing and a way of life. Do you have a work-life balance? And if yes, how do you, like, what are some tricks that you've learned to get there? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't. I have, I've made a conscious decision to start doing that this year, and I'm, I'm trying to. Um, but to give you a sense of how imbalanced it was, I think in four years of being in this business, I've taken a couple of weeks off. So it's pretty bad. But it's not something that I, I know that a lot of us founders and, and entrepreneurs and people who run businesses, you're constantly talking about how it's nonstop, nonstop. And it's almost like there's a part of, of you that's like, yeah, I'm nonstop. <laughs> I'm like, you know, your ego is taking over. Um, but the truth is that I think in the long run, it's just um, you need that balance. You need that balance to thrive and to be, you know, inspiring for your team and to be there for them and to you know, because you, you're living too, right? And and that is a commitment that I have made to myself to look after myself and make time for, you know, for family and, you know, treasure weekends and not glorify like working on weekends and after hours because we do that also. And I came from a culture, corporate culture that glorified that. I think finance as, a, as an industry in general, like working weekends and I'm working until 3 a.m. is such a, a thing. You sound like you're you're complaining, but you're, you know, you're part of the... You're bragging, yeah, actually. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I'm generalizing, of course, but but still. So, so I, I think it's... If balance is not going to find you. You're going to have to find it and figure out how to bring it into your life. So my two hours in the morning are part of my balance. My, you know, my sacred Friday um, is part of my balance. You have to trust the team that you have in place. And you have to know that sometimes a short... A short break or, you know, a, a bit of um, time off can can actually take you back to being far more productive than, you know, working, working nonstop for a very long period. Um, what are some of the things that you've learned about yourself uh, as as uh, going through this this entrepreneurial journey with the modus that you didn't know yeah. five years ago, four yeah. years ago? I think I've learned um, to really trust myself. And, you know, I, I've always known that I was a strong person, like I'm a fighter by, by nature. And, but I think I surprised myself with how much resilience and grit I have. And I think, I think that a lot of us, and I'm very passionate about this, a lot of us, especially women, 
really dumb ourselves down in terms of our capabilities and potential and what we can and can't do. And, you know, when I think back 10 years ago or even like five, seven years ago, seven years ago, I would have never imagined myself running a business, let alone running a business with, you know, senior people in it, with massive investors, you know, that, with the turnaround that we have. And, and that's why I'm so passionate about, you know, all of us instilling that confidence in young girls at an early stage because the potential that's there is, is massive and may never get out of there if we don't encourage them and, and show them. I spoke with Rizlan in January 2020. And since then, as you all know, the world has really changed. COVID-19 has left so many people unemployed around the world, and it's hurt a lot of businesses. In early April, the Modist announced that it was permanently shutting down after three years of operation. In the words of Rizlan, the global crisis that hit the world left their young business vulnerable and with no option but to cease operating. In the weeks since, there has been an outpouring of love and support from huge fashion brands and publishers. They talk about the legacy the Modest will leave behind. As the first modest fashion company, the Modest created a category in fashion, in luxury fashion that didn't exist before. And personally, I believe whatever Rizlan and her team decide to do next will also leave a similar lasting impact. This episode was produced by Tamara Rasamni, Alex Atak, Hiba Fisher, and myself, Dana Balut. Sound design by Alex Atak and mixing by Mohamed Khrezat. Our original sting was composed by Ramzi Bashur, and El Empire is produced by the Kerning Cultures Network. If you're liking El Empire, please, please, please subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Leave us a ranking, hopefully five stars, and review us on whatever podcast app you're listening to us from. It really helps boost our ranking so that other listeners can find our episodes. And next week on El Empire? I attempted to row across the Atlantic Ocean. I rode about a thousand kilometers with my teammate before capsizing in a massive storm. The boat not self-righting, the life raft not opening and spending 13 hours not knowing whether we would live or die. Um, he says casually. <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, which has now actually been made into a movie. That's in one week. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. 
So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.